So what have you done as a brand to be top of mind, to be considered first, to be recalled? Welcome back to another episode of the Happy Marketer Connection brought to you by Vesta. My name is Sue Freck, and each week, along with my guests, other fellow passionate marketers, we will explore engaging and inventive marketing strategies and toast brands making impactful consumer connections. Please kick back, relax, and join our happy half hour of marketing inspiration and positivity and come away a happier and smarter marketer. This week's theme is trends in beauty. You know, the beauty industry just continues to be on fire. Even with the world of social distancing and most of us moving to remote work and school, we all work in yoga pants or sweatpants or gym shorts, yet so many of us desire to have beautiful hair, flawless lips and eyes. With the explosion of Instagram beauty stars like James Charles and Nikki Jaeger, with over 14 million followers, beauty brands and marketers cannot ignore the power of their influence. But as we know, there's a challenge. Trends move quickly and it is really difficult for brands to keep up. We also tend to see themes in beauty trends. Today, I keep reading about consumers' interest in exploration, clean beauty, and we all really need to pay attention to the rise of these independent brands. So let's dive in. So hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Happy Marketer Connection. I have my guest today, Erica Solomon. Erica is the beauty director of customer experience and partnerships at Brandshare, and she has spent the majority of her career working in beauty. And today we're really going to hear from her firsthand about some of the latest trends and what she's seeing. So thank you so much for joining me, Erica. Thank you for having me, Sue. I'm very excited. So I have an icebreaker for you, and this is always a fun one because I feel like it's something we talk about even outside of my podcast. But really going back, what was your most memorable fashion trend, beauty trend, beauty style that you absolutely loved growing up? but today makes you cringe? Oh, there are a few. So I can't take the fashion one for credit, but my mom did have a thing for bonnets during holidays. So I used <laughs> to wear a, ba- you know, a beautiful uh, straw bonnet, but I would say the one that I look back on in photos that really gives me you know, the heebie-jeebies was the ice blue eyeshadow all over your eyelid. And you know, I would always pair it with a red lipstick. I love my red lipstick today, but the ice blue eyeshadow that one really just drives it home, I think. Very 90s, very, <laughs> very, very trend appropriate at the time. Exactly. For me, I'm from Jersey originally, you know, live in Colorado now, but it's the huge Jersey hair. And it's no joke. I showed some people and I'll show you after. Um, it didn't fit on my driver's license. Like in the photo, my hair was so high, it literally got cut off. So that gives you a sense of, of how, of what it looked like and obviously cringeworthy today. So let's dive in. Let's talk about your current role. Who is Brandshare for those that don't know? And then what's your role at Brandshare? Brandshare is the largest e-commerce sampling network. So we distribute millions of products to homes, surprising and delighting customers with product samples. In addition to that, we also have customer loyalty programs. So if you think about Walmart, Foodline, Lowe's, they're always trying to bring in new consumers and our customer loyalty plays allow us to, you know, create a really loyal purchaser for those uh, retailers. What I do specifically is I do our Walmart beauty box. So the beauty box is a great tool for Walmart to acquire new consumers but it also gives the subscriber the opportunity to you know, try a sample at home at the comfort of our own home. And it gives brands the opportunity to get their product in hand and get them trialing 
and you know, I come from the sampling world and still working with so many CPG brands today, it is one of the most powerful ways to get a consumer to try a product that they may not have um, awareness of, interest of before. And mm-hmm. so that surprise and delight component on your e-commerce business is critical, but also obviously on the subscription, the um, 100% open rate. I mean, there is no doubt that people are opening up their e-commerce, which obviously we'll talk yeah. about today, but there's also a 100% open rate because they've subscribed to the box and they're actually really excited about it. So I think that gives you guys a really unique position. Yes. And it's also, you know, it's an experience for them. So if you think about seasonalities of beauty trends, there's different needs she has each, you know, at different parts of the year, you know, we pay attention to that. And we're not only providing her something that will surprise her, but something she probably needs in that moment. And it'll give her the opportunity, like we're saying, you know, she's going to try it. She's going to put it on her shelf. She's going to look at it every day. And then, you know, after a certain number of uses, if she was really delighted by the product, we'll find her converting to the full size, which is obviously part of the goals. Yeah, which is amazing for the brands that you partner with. So let's talk mm-hmm. about what's going on in the world today, the pandemic. You know, what has changed as it relates to beauty trends, fashion trends, but really, you know, we're focusing on beauty today. What's changed during this uh, crazy world that we live in? Yeah, so you know what's funny is a couple of years ago, I went to CES and there was all of this technology about achieving salon quality performance at home. So that was, you know, that was hair dryers though, and, and, you know, um, UV gel kits, which are also very popular now, but when salons closed, when women couldn't get their hair cut, when they couldn't get their hair dyed, you saw all these personal care and beauty, you know, related items flying off of the shelf. And it was even products that you wouldn't have necessarily anticipated. So, you know, artificial nails and and nail um, press-ons, yes, they were very, you know, popular with certain demographics before one of my brands could not keep product on shelf during the pandemic because no one could go to a salon. I also tried them and I was, you know, pleasantly surprised. I would not have been a user, a user otherwise. And we had placed it in a beauty box and I thought, you know, this is a good thing to give a try. The other things you see though, are the wellness movement. You also green movement. So brands becoming more and more conscious of, you know, their, their footprint. So um, when you think about subscription programs and the ability to, you know, create that unboxing moment, but also, be conscious and green about the packaging. So there's a vitamin brand called Gem, where the first unboxing moment is, you know, that Apple iPhone unboxing, if you will, or that, you know, when you buy a really nice pair of sneakers. But all of the subsequent subscriptions that you receive are actually a little sachet with the vitamins, and they encourage you to put those in the original jar that you oh, receive. Oh, I love that. Love that idea. Really, really smart. Yeah. Yeah. So you see, you know, you see a couple of those things. And then, of course, the one that really surprised me the most was this, um, increase in men's usage. So men's beauty was on the rise a little bit, but with the idea that in a Zoom call, as much as I can see you and as great as our screens are resolution, there was less potential for judgment. So men started painting their nails more. Maybe they used more BB and CC cream than they had in the past. Maybe they wanted to try concealer because, you know, if the shade didn't match perfectly, they're not walking around in office, they're in the comfort of their home. So men's usage really did skyrocket during this. And I don't think it's going away. Yeah, that's amazing. Also, I wouldn't have thought of that. And I guess, you know, certainly we care, you know, we're home, we're casual, we've got our Zoom outfits on, but we absolutely care about what our hair and our face looks like. You know, one of the things I noticed was the newscasters, you know, they were also forced to put on their own makeup, you know, they didn't have a makeup artist. And it was amazing. And I actually appreciate it. They looked uh, genuine and authentic. Um, But I definitely say that people really paid attention to being able to 
know what to do with products, know how to use them. Um, but we're definitely experimenting more at home and particularly the hair dye. I know that myself included um, couldn't get the color that I needed on the shelf because it was completely out, out of stock, but um, have definitely seen a, a lot of those trends as well. So, you know, are there any other surprises? I mean, we talked about men's category. Any other surprises that you've seen over the past couple of months or even the past year in, in beauty? You know, what's interesting is like this, this wellness movement. So obviously beauty from the inside out, but another part of that is sexual wellness. So a couple of different brands on the rise kind of in that category. So there's fur, there's Queen V. And, you know, when I was at the CEW Beauty Demo Awards, sexual wellness had its own little part of the demonstration area. And that was brand new. You did not see that in 2019 or even 2018. So beauty is an ever evolving industry. It's an ever evolving landscape. And I think that sort of wellness being considered is, is definitely new and certainly surprising. <laughs> yeah, that is absolutely surprising. And I think your this podcast will come after um, a podcast where we did focus on an expert in the sexual wellness category. And it's, oh, it's one of those categories that we're con consistently getting permission to talk about. So I think that's mm -hmm. happening across the board, just that confidence that you can talk about things that maybe you weren't going to talk about before. I know we've worked with brands that we've called, you know, below the belt um, and just being open and honest with your friends and your um, people in your social networks, you know, you've been given permission to do that and to sort of help each other and you don't have to like hide it anymore. So I'm surprised by it being there, but I'm not surprised at the same time. So what about like for yourself, you know, where do you go for inspiration? What are you reading these days? I think there's so many opportunities um, with all of the beauty stars and, and bloggers. And, and I mentioned in the intro, you've got, you know, James Charles and Nikki DeJagger. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but um, you know, you get all these stars and it makes it so easy to get content, but there's too much of it almost. So where do you go for inspiration or where do you recommend when people are saying, you know, where do you get your beauty tips from? So it's really funny. Like I'm, you know, I'm in the really uh, lucky position to constantly just be in flux with new beauty products. I also have a network of friends who all work in the same atmosphere that I do. So it's, it's less of, I'm less of an influencer follower, but what I really do love is like beauty matter articles. I love reading women's wear daily. I'll look at a chain drug review and you'll just see like, Oh, this is coming up. And then I'll, you know, I'll text my friend who works at elf and I'll say, oh, Hey, like heard, heard this is going on or a friend who's at Clinique to hear, you know, what they have coming down for holiday or what, what key ingredients is everybody talking about? And I really do like, you know, those sort of avenues to get that sort of information as far as my own you know, beauty inspiration, I do kind of look to Australia quite a bit. Yeah, they have a much more natural beauty approach, I think, than the U.S. does. So you'll find women with, you know, with very light coverage of makeup and, you know, their hair is naturally big and curly and I, you know, big curly hair girl. Um, <laughs> and so there's a couple of different brands like Bally Body is there, which is like an SPF and sun care brand, but they've recently made a transition to skincare and light tint products, if you will, which I really like. Um, and I got lucky. I did come across them by, from two influencers and you know, a couple of different retailers that I follow there also promote different Australian brands that have different, um, you know, eyeshadows and highlighters, but you'll never, like, you rarely find like thick cakey foundation there. You rarely find contouring, like very deep contouring like you do here. It's more of like, wh what are the high points to highlight? 
and that's kind of what they focus on. So I really did, I, when I found that, I was like, okay, I go down, I went down that, you know, rabbit hole, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I've just kind of landed there now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting. I had not thought about that for Australia, but I think you do make a good point about clean beauty products. You know, I had the CEO of Credo on the show um, earlier, and I just think there is so important. It's like we're, we're all focused on the environment and it's not just the packaging, but what we eat is really important. So why not what we put on our skin? And again, and then that product goes down the drain. So I'm seeing that trend, but I'll have to look out for uh, what's happening in Australia and maybe it'd be an excuse for me to go there one day <laughs> as well. So um, when you think about one of the trends that I've seen, gender neutral, are there any brands that are doing it well? What, what do you think to come for those types of products? It was interesting because I was on, um, I was listening to a, like a summit, a podcast the other day, and it was all around this, this men's beauty movement. It wasn't so much gender neutral, but you did hear, you heard from the founder of Strix and the founder of Warpaint, so two men's beauty brands. One is, you know, UK founded, a little bit, you know, high end. They hope to sell in like Blue Mercury. Um, and then Strix is actually for like drugstore. And you kind of, when they were talking through the positioning, you know, they both kind of said the hope is that one day it is more gender, like it is more gender neutral, but they kind of liked that their product was geared towards a man and that a female products were geared towards females because at the end of the day, different, you know, different hormones, different needs, different skin types, skin is thicker, skin is thinner. So I'm curious to see if that, like what brand will be first to maybe blur those lines a little bit more. But you do see, you know, different brands doing different things. So Tom Ford has, Chanel has, is releasing a men's beauty um, collection of like three SKUs, James Charles for CoverGirl. There was this normalization that happened where men could use women's makeup products, full faces, contours, eyeshadows, the whole thing. Um, Strix was much more about like a natural product, just help you look your best. The founder told the story how he woke up on his wedding day with a pimple. And, you know, when, as a woman, yes, you know, you, you, you're kind of like, well, that, that happens. We wake up with pimples. But he said he never realized how much that basically society basically says, well, men don't need makeup. Men, men usually have perfect skin. Men usually have long eyelashes. And it's funny because I know I've said that to my friends. I'm like, why do men always get such beautiful hair and such nice skin and they don't have to do anything? And he basically was like, well, that just, he's like, that wasn't the case for me. And it was very embarrassing. And he's like, I photoshopped all of my wedding photos. And he wanted something that didn't make him feel uncomfortable to go buy it at the store, that he could be comfortable, like talking and recommending it to his friends. So, you know, he went out and created like this BB and CC line of products so that he could have, you know, flawless coverage and, you know, focus his friends on their wedding days. Really great story from that brand. Really interesting times. But they did not mention about going gender neutral. Yeah. They were very excited to be a men's beauty product. Yeah, and I think that brings up a good point. You know, you talk about that trend that is a newer trend and those that it's nice to see that they've got the high end, but they also have something that's available for drug and, you know, and, and some less expensive retailers. One question about that. So it's so interesting to me how many people buy their products at drugstores, beauty products. What, and mm -hmm. that is a trend. Okay, so maybe 10 years ago, but what do you think that is also? What's... What's, because you've got, you have other large big box retailers that sell beauty products, but then you've got these drugstores. Like what's, what do you think is happening that, that created that? Well, I give CVS, Dwayne Reed and Target like a lot of credit. So before the pandemic, um, you know, I'd gone in there and there's mirrors and there's lighting stations and there's, there's seats. It's less of just finding something on a shelf and they're almost trying to create their own mini experiences. You know, they want to compete with 
Ulta, who, who toes the line of, of math and prestige all the time. So these retailers have been really putting in a lot of effort to provide advisors, to have um, the samples available, you know, before this whole pandemic to, to test and trial that you didn't really have before. And that's because at the end of the day, you know, no matter who you are, and in most, I'll say for the most part, no matter who you are, your shelf is mixed. It's rare to find a woman who only uses prestige. You're never going to find somebody who only uses mass. Everybody has one product that they buy because they aspire to be, you know, if you can't buy the Chanel purse, you buy the Chanel lipstick. But, you know, at the same time, brands that sell on those, like Dior, it's a great product. Why spend more when I can get a really good cleanser for $5.97, for example? So I think what you're seeing is those those mass and, and drugstore chains are really looking for ways to compete with the Ulta's, not necessarily the Sephora's, but the Ulta's of the world who are providing, you know, a little bit more experience, a little bit more help, a little bit more guidance in that shopping journey. And that's what they're trying to do. And it's interesting. Yeah, it seems like they're doing it well. You know, they saw an opportunity for, um, I guess, that, you know, the mass, the less expensive products, but it's the volume they're doing, tremendous volume mm-hmm. of products. So they have that captive audience in there. Interested in building a home for your audience? Our Vesta solution powers online communities, giving your consumers a home for a world of engagement and connections. To learn more, visit us at vesta-go.com. You know, are there any, I love independent startup brands. I love working with them. I have such an appreciation for them. And even your story about, about the men's brand, it always comes out of this need. It's like this personal thing. Are there any independent beauty brands that we should be paying attention to right now or that you've sort of fallen in love with? For those clean lovers out there, if you haven't heard of Clove and Hallow, I highly recommend it. So Clove and Hallow is a brand born out of Atlanta and it was all about clean beauty. So Sarah, the founder, started out as a makeup artist. She wanted color payoff, but she didn't like the chemical aspect of, you know, the, the ingredients that go into most beauty products. So she created a beautiful line of Clove and Hallow product. It started as color cosmetics. She introduced it as skin, um, like a melt, a makeup remover melt which is gorgeous. So definitely, definitely someone to look at. Another brand that's up and coming is called He Time. So this is a skincare brand. They're starting with a sheet mask. It's exactly what it sounds like. It was originally created with men in mind, so much so that the mask actually doesn't cover your whole face. It has a space because men have beards. Um, So you really only have the top half of your, of your sheet mask. Um, And then they too are natural. Uh, They're based out of, I want to say Germany or Austria. They've been, they're selling um, direct to consumer online. So they're fantastic as well. And then on that wellness kind of circuit, if you, if you're a vitamin lover, there's a vitamin out there called the ritual. And they're based out of LA and kind of similar story. The, uh, the founders, you know, when she was getting going, like we're planning to be pregnant, she noticed like those, some ingredients and some vitamins weren't really, didn't seem healthy or didn't seem natural. And she wanted to have transparency in her ingredient sourcing. She wanted to have transparency in what was going into your body. So that was actually a subscription base. They send it to you every 30 days and it helps replace all of those nutrients that we don't really get from eating. So I would say those are, those are three great ones. So key time, Cloven Hallow and the ritual. From a marketing standpoint, do you think there's any themes um, for the ones that are successful? So there are so many startup brands that launch in the beauty category. There's so many products in the beauty category. Are there some themes that you see that um, you know can make or break some of these startup brands? You know, what it really does come down to is 
building that following and making making your moment special. So I remember when He Time was launching, you know, they did their launch on social media. So they didn't launch a site and just open the site and not tell anybody that it existed, you know. Yeah. Um, they did a social media launch. When it was Cloven Hollow, actually, she had started it. She and I, you know, we're, we were friends and we actually did a sampling with Glossy Box for her when I was working there. And it was one of those things, you know, a couple months into her being up and running and then we're getting product out in the hands of people because, you know, like we said before, sampling is the third largest driver to conversion when it comes to beauty. So if you're not getting product in hand, it's definitely, you know, if that's not part of your marketing mix, mix it is missing. And especially when you're a new brand and you're, you're fighting the fight on the shelf, you have somebody walking in and up into a department store to, a, you know, a grocery store or a mass retailer. They don't know what they want to buy when it comes to beauty. They're making that decision in that moment at that shelf if she's, you know, she's just exploring. So what have you done as a brand to be top of mind, to be considered first, to be recalled by her when she's looking at this like sea of sameness in a mass yep. retailer? Right. So sampling really is one of those key drivers for success from what we've seen at least. Yeah. And from what we've seen, you know, we build online communities, like you were saying, having that following first, turning those uh, people that are fans into advocates and then doing it at scale. Mm -hmm. So putting the sample in their hands like your business does and then giving the audience a home to really tell their friends about it. So whether they're using social or they're building a community on a platform like ours, but we have certainly seen some startup brands really compete and win against the big guys. Um, you know, you look at companies like Hello Products, you know, and I know you guys work with mm -hmm. them as well. And I think it's just a tremendous yeah. opportunity to take those loyalists, um, you know, and, and really amplify what they're, what they're doing through this authentic conversation that they're having. Mm -hmm. I have a question about, you were talking about Ulta, Sephora. H how do those two help differentiate each other? <laughs> you know, what, what sort of the theme, I'm not in, in as close to it as you are, but what really helps them differentiate from, from one another? Yeah. So when, um, you know, and this is pre-pandemic and even now, Sephora has always been looked at as the beauty authority. You know, you walk into a Sephora and there are, you know, all of these different beauty advisors who can help you achieve any look you want. You know, they're all very gifted and, with, and they can, you know, wield a wand of, of beauty on you and, you know, educate you so deeply. And so, you know, Sephora has always been that, that strong authority. But, you know, in a lot of consumers' opinions, Sephora is a little intimidating. You walk into yeah. the store, it's kind of loud. Um, yeah. You know, and if you, if you don't know what you're doing and you're not that confident, do you feel comfortable approaching a beauty advisor whose, whose cat eye is, you know, so pointed and perfect? Not always. And I think that's really where Ulta came in because they noticed to the conversation, a shelf is mixed. Sephora is more premium. So Ulta yeah. offers, you know, diversity of product at, at different price points. Um, it's a little bit more friendly. So while you can still find, you know, really great customer service and, and advice, it's just a much more approachable brand, I would say, and a much more approachable retailer. Yep. So I'd say those are probably the main differentiators. But what's interesting is the way that Sephora builds its sampling packages now once it went away from its um, subscription. So they package out these different sets to help you like introduce you to new products and find your favorites. So instead of having, um, you know, one of one of our pillars of our box experience is subcategory exclusivity. But what one of Sephora's offers, for example, is a mascara kit. So it's, you know, five of the best selling mascaras. You purchase that, and you, you try each one, and then you can find your favorite. But at least they've given you the reassurance that, hey, these five are best sellers. Like, you're going to love one of these. Yeah. Um, so it's really interesting approach that they have, for sure. 
Yeah, letting them sample it again, giving them that experience ahead of time. So, um, and, and actually when you talk about it, it makes so much sense with the Sephora, that sort of that difference uh, when you walk into the store, that culture of the store right away, but there's a place for each of them, which is why they're both so successful today. So sampling, mm-hmm. you know, in-world sampling, I came from event marketing many years ago, but you can't do in-store demos no, right now. So, but brands need to sample. What, what, are, what are you advising them when it comes to sampling right now? Yeah, I would say give us a call because um, what's really fun about sampling is there's so many avenues. So as I mentioned, we have the loyalty plays where we have um, curated boxes that are sent, you know, with themes and to really, you know, really excited subscriber bases. Then there's the e-commerce angle where we can insert the product into a box and target the audience that you're looking for. Because at the end of the day, you know, what a consumer is really looking for is to feel that they get to trial the product in a safely, essentially, especially with what's happening in the world. And there is nothing really more safe than it really arriving right on your doorstep and you just taking it inside. So that's really what we've been kind of communicating out to our brand partners is we work with facilities that were um, deemed essential because they work for other brands with essential services. There's extra cleaning and different parts of the process so that we can ensure that when the package arrives, you know, it's safe. And, you know, we put a lot of effort into making sure that when that product arrives at home, that's a positive experience. So we'll do overwrapping, we'll do inserts, we'll have digital touch points that you can continue that conversation because a lot of times the question is, I put my sample in a box, now what? Well, we can tell you what happened. Did they, did they engage in a survey? Did they have a conversation with one of our Facebook messengers and, and you know, learn more about your brand? Or did we want them to just you know, add it right to their cart on, on Walmart and, and shop and purchase right away? So because of the, because of, you know, the history of our company, because of you know, we're just really good at doing this, been doing this for a very long time and enhancing with now these digital touch points, we can help brands determine you know, what, what's the right size campaign, what's the right fit, who, who are we really trying to talk to, what are our goals? And now, you know, last but not least, let's make sure we get these products in, in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Makes tremendous sense. And, and again, I do recommend uh, brands listening that they call Brandshare for sure. Can you, so we have a community member question, you know, we have a smiley community and um, about 1.2 million consumers try products and experiences. A question from the community member, how does a brand decide who gets a sample? Like what's that process that they're going through and what, where they're going to sample? Yeah. So, you know, sampling is, while it is effective and powerful, it is really just a piece of an overall marketing strategy, right? We know, we all know this. And so when you think about that, it's always important to time your sampling campaign to everything else that's going in the world on in the world. So from a brand's perspective, you know, if it is, if it's specific to a certain target audience, so, you know, if it's Olay is coming out with a new anti-aging moisturizer, we send it to, you know, women 35 plus. For some brands, you know, it's really about awareness. So it's a spray and pray where, mm-hmm. you know, we're just trying to drive social, drive organic, drive earned media value. So everybody gets to have the product. In other cases, though, some products, you know, really are meant for specific use cases based on specific insights. So, you know, would it really make sense to send, um, you know, a tanning product to an African-American subscriber? No, we, doesn't, doesn't fit. Um, does it make sense to send a blonde product to, you know, women who aren't blonde? No. no. Right. Um, right. But at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is like, what are those brand, what is the brand's goals? What is going on in the rest of their marketing campaign? Where does this piece kind of fit into that pie? 
and who are they trying to talk to and reach. So it's less about who gets the sample. It's more about what is that overarching strategy and goal for the brand. That's what we probe on. We ask brands a lot of questions. We'll say, you know, what are you doing everywhere else? Who are you trying to talk to? Who is your target demographic in general? And then who is this meant for? Because all of those little pieces should come into play when you're, when you're doing a sampling campaign. Yeah. Yeah, that um, absolutely makes sense. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And I think to your point, the spray and pray, there are brands that just need it in the masses. So they're going to come to you and say, no, I have a million samples. And then there's others that say, no, I need this in a specific demographic, but I only have a hundred. So let's put it in the right hands each and every time uh, for sampling. So I absolutely have seen that in our world as well. So we're coming up on the end and I always like to end with a positive story. Is there something, Erica, that you can share, you know, something funny, positive along your career or personal life that you can share with our audience today? Yes. So, you know, one of the stories that I hold near and dear to my heart um, was that we granted, if you're familiar with Make-A-Wish, we granted a wish. And by that, I mean, when I was a student athlete at my college, um, I was president of our student athlete advising committee. And, you know, as a division two athlete, they really focus on you being a well-rounded person. So there's a, obviously the sports component, there's the academic component, but then there's the community component. And in my first year as president, you know, sitting with my advisor, she's like, what do you want to do? And Make-A-Wish, you know, was our um, nonprofit of choice for our whole division. And I said, you know, how much does it cost to grant a wish? So we called up our New Hampshire chapter. We, you know, we got some information. And then we sat down and we said, do we really think that a bunch of students can raise a wish? So we split the committee up into different subcommittees, gave everybody different goals to reach and, you know, different ideas. One was to, you know, have a student section at the games. One was to do a, a winter formal for the athletes. So, and everything obviously had some sort of donation component to it. And we had a barometer that we would, you know, color in every time we get yes. another dollar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and even before our sports banquet, we had reached our goal, you know, by mid-April. So, you know, if you put yourself, put yourself in the shoes of a bunch of students, we only had 2,500 students on campus. So when you hear that we raised, you know, about five, five and a half thousand dollars from two and a half thousand students, it was probably one of the most amazing achievements of my life to just like watch not only, you know, it's an achievement for me and everybody else on that committee who, who worked on it, um, but to watch not only the students, but the students and the student athletes and the teachers and the faculty all come together and say like, oh no, we're going to make this happen. We will, we will make this wish. It was incredible. So I love it. That's one that I hold near and dear. Yeah. Such a great story. Thanks. And I think it just reminds all of us um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have someone on from a nonprofit and it's, they've taken one of the biggest hits during this pandemic because money is mm-hmm. tight and there are, is job loss and funds are going maybe to frontline versus to some of these organizations. But I think at the end of the day, your story just reminds people how, what kind of impact that can have when you donate time, money, um, and you continue to give back. And I love companies that continue to do that as well. But I think that story just reminds all of us how important it is. And I know I definitely look at it for myself and my children, like how can we give back? But I, I love that story. And I think that's just wonderful that it stayed with you for so long. And I do have to ask your student athlete, what did you play? 
I was a volleyball player, so I was an outside and a defensive specialist. It's a little short, but you know, back in the day I could jump. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. No, I love it. I mean, and I do think student athletes in general too, you know, they make great, you know, you're hardworking, you've got your goal setting. And I think at the end of the day, they help us build character of who we are. And that's why you probably have had such a successful career as well in building partnerships because you've, you have that great foundation. Do you have any final thoughts, anything to end with? Yeah, I would just say, you know, beauty is a really exciting, ever evolving industry. And, you know, everything we talked about today, you could basically apply to a bunch of other verticals. It's not specific to beauty, you know, and when it comes to sampling, getting a product in the hand, it's a great tool for any, you know, whether it's CPG or beauty or, you know, fashion, you know, it's a strong and powerful tool to make somebody touch something and feel something. So I would just say, you know, like we said before, if you're, if you're a brand listening and you've been struggling to find the right time or the right way, we're happy to, we're happy to help. And if you're not in beauty and you're in CPG, you know, lift some of these ideas and, and take them back to your team. And some of them, you know, they're pretty universal. So that's really it. I would say <laughs> it's a great yeah. way, great <laughs> reminder for everybody. And then Erica, how do people find you? If people listening want to find you or Brandshare? Sure. You guys can just go to brandshare.us. So brand spelled as brand share.us. And then um, we have a form you can fill out there. Feel free to email me. My name is Erica Solomon. Uh, my email is esolomon with all O's at brandshare.us. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Erica. This has been so fun. I love speaking to you, hearing about all the trends and, and getting recommendations. And there are certainly brands uh, that anyone listening will be looking up and interested to watch. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you, Sue. This was great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Erica, for joining us today. To hear more stories and lessons from happy marketers, be sure to subscribe to the Happy Marketer Connection podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about community building, our Vesta solutions deliver community-powered marketing to elevate your digital presence, deliver predictive insights, and transform your consumers into lasting brand advocates. This world is fast and ever-changing as we know, and Vesta is here to help you future-proof your business via community-powered marketing. And I welcome you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Sue Freck, or to find us at vesta-go.com. Thank you.